0: Welcome to Adopting Zero Trust, an independent podcast that dives into the world of zero trust and tells the story of people who are adopting it. Throughout our series, we'll investigate why zero trust is becoming a critical concept for cybersecurity. Our hosts, Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis, will have transparent and open conversations with the people driving modern security approaches forward, while leaving vendor hype behind. It's time to remove implicit trust and buzzwords and get to the root of the
1: movement.
2: Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of AZT or Adopting Zero Trust. Today we have a wonderful guest, one that I'm sure actually anyone who's familiar with any semblance of Zero Trust will probably recognize the name. Today we have Dr. Chase Cunningham, aka Dr. Zero Trust. A.K.A. the C.S.O. of aircom Software. How far down our LinkedIn list are we going to go? Oh, also used yeah. to work with Forrester and a few other organizations. Just a few things on the name on your list. So I will be happy to put a spotlight on you know all the fantastic titles that you have. But maybe you would like to give a little bit of a better introduction so we don't I guess overdo it a little bit.
0: Sure. So I'm retired Navy chief. I was in the cryptologic services there. Don't hold it against me. I know that we've got you know Marines online, but it is what it is. Then I. I. I got medically retired after my last deployment. I went to work for three letters after that as a filthy contractor. And then I transitioned over to Forrester, which was awesome. And I left Forrester, it'll be two years ago in January, to do the strategy stuff at Ericom. And in the meantime, I managed to get a doctorate and publish some books and write patents and things.
2: Yeah, just just a few things, (laughs) patents.
0: Matt, i mean my, my biggest thing is i hope i'm raising relatively useful humans that will soon leave my home and go off and do other things but that's the real bar for success
1: i think the key point is eventually leave the house that that that's the key piece you know efficiencies or not as long as they don't have to come crawling back oh yeah
0: yeah as long as you can go somewhere else i've got you to this point now go
2: so going off that, I fortunately do not have to deal with children. So I don't know how any of that works. And y'all are already significantly further ahead in life. life. Yeah. There's a yeah, zero trust policy
1: for anything that knocks at the door looking for female interactions. Zero <laughs> trust whatsoever. That's how that works. That's how you get into zero trust as a dad with no cybersecurity background. Your first zero trust piece is what's knocking on that door. And is it here for my son or for my daughter? It's for my son congratulations if it's for my daughter we're gonna need a bill of sale um, <laughs> i might have to
2: do heavy edits on this episode i can already see it jokes <laughs> aside we try never to edit, it especially with neil because that's our entertainment value right there sure. so that all out there <laughs> sorry i'm just making this worse for him but that all out there dang i'm gonna mute him so again i think where I probably want to jump into first is obviously with your podcast, Dr. Zero Trust, you are pioneering really where we're jumping on your coattails, so to speak. I mean, you're helping really Educate people, bring light to different conversations. And that's kind of where we're jumping into. I know you've had conversations with the technology vendors as well, which obviously makes sense with your background working with Forrester. That's kind of you know their bread and butter. Being able to help facilitate, cut through some of that noise. But no, this is going to be a very broad question. But over the period of time that you've you know put your your Dr. Zero Trust podcast together. You know, what have you kind of taken away from that? Like, what is the focal point? I know some of your past posts in the past like month or two, you know, everything's been very organic and kind of driven by just kind of the idea of telling stories. For you personally, what have you kind of taken away from that so far? Well, I think the
0: biggest thing for me is that uh, there is an audience for people that want to find kind of the honest side of things between vendors and marketing and doing the work and the government and whatever else and i mean i spend the majority of my time trying to find the you know the needle in the haystack of what's actually going on in there and then I mean, the other thing that's been really good for me is all the positive feedback I get because I try and make it a point every week to go find vulnerable stuff and point it out to people. I get cease and desist letters from the companies. I have a stack of them here on my desk that I maybe someday I'll make like a I love me wall out of them or something. But the other folks that are not the people that are, you know, being notified of that, they're actually thinking that it's pretty good. I've even had some congressional and Senate staffers reach out and be like, hey, that's good because someone's listening. You know, I think it, I think it, it shows that there's a real concern about some of this stuff.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think at the end of the day, and again, writing your coattails and we'll gladly admit to that, but a lot of the conversations that we see come out of, you know, your podcast in particular and just in the space is that I think it is very difficult to define what zero trust is, but people like you and in your shoes are doing a fantastic job of being able to help disseminate what that looks like. But if you it. are actually mm-hmm. able to Yeah, sorry. I mean I, I'm not trying to make this like the, you're the awesome, no, I episode, appreciate it. but that's kind of where it is. Yeah. It's, it's all, I mean,
0: what's the, you know, what's the thing is the, the greatest uh, gift someone can give you is flattery, right? Which is, you know, it's cool coming from people that are actually doing the work instead of, you know, right. when you have the, some vendor that's trying to get, you know, uh, into your, into your uh, shenanigans there. Oh, it's, mm-hmm. we really love what you do and whatever else. And you're like, oh, which one did you listen to? And they're like, oh, well, I don't know. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's, if I slip you like a couple of grand, can you just say really nice things about me on the podcast? Yeah, yeah super. Totally. It'll work great. And I mean, that's exactly why we built this podcast. Yeah, we're probably just not going to have conversations with that. We'll chat with MSSPs and eventually folks like yourselves to be able to kind of have real conversations. Because, you know, at the end of the day, who has the most money and who has the most voice? If you do one Google search with your trust, you're going to see every single product company that's out there. And um, <laughs> they're all even TV. though, yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, you're, you know, history here comes out pretty well. So obviously having a strong voice and an advocate for true definitions, someone that has an analyst relations background and a government relations background, it's it's not, I don't know. It's kind of like a unicorn in the space. Obviously. I've had people, I've had vendors
0: confront me about it, get in my face at events Mm -hmm. about not being included in something or whatever, you know? And I was like, you know, one of the couple of times it's happened is it like, number one, this is not the way to go about the process. And number two, getting in my face is a good way to make sure you just wound up on the list of, you know, people to mess with.
1: Right. I have no personal fear. I'll call out vendors for ill behavior. I don't care. I'll call out my own company. I work for if that came down to it. I, you know, if you're being a jerk, you're being a jerk and people, I have, I don't have a non-disclosure, non-compete agreement, publicly speaking. So yeah, whatever.
0: Yeah. You know, anyway, I know what line I can
1: walk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one thing, obviously, when you're working in a community. Like my background right now is with the ISACs and ISOs, and if you're in a trusted community, you're not allowed to talk pricing. You're not allowed to talk technically, overtly bad per se, but you can share experience. But you're not allowed to talk pricing and stuff. Yeah, whatever. We don't have those agreements, so please bash away. We'll republish it for you and put a big <laughs> banner up that says, "You know, so and so needs to stay away." It's the name of the game, free publicity, but no, that's good stuff. I think what I'm also finding out is that Elliot might've asked you before me to be the beard in the other side of the camera, but I'm okay with that. And, you know, I, I agree. He, you know, he, he could fill the, bill he does a have better a better
2: voice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I just trimmed it down. My wife for, uh, for Halloween, she like did a big Viking deal and I spent like hours with glue in my face face and all this beard stuff or whatever it was oh, it was man. it looked great but man it was a nightmare
1: not nah, moving uh, beard bobbles. anyway <laughs> moving forward we're gonna, we're gonna spend way too much time talking about bullshit well, that's good yeah, this that's is a good fine. part people like it well we get there right that's part of the journey isn't the thing real quick on that same note though back on target slightly We talked very quickly about the vendor piece. I love bringing this up because going to big name brand conferences, whether it's RSA or Gartner earlier this year, instead of Forrester, you know, with all the new tech stacks that have been sold, everybody's very hot to trot on what it means to try to define zero trust. And I think where Elliot's getting to is maybe asking you for what you personally consider the definition, at least at a high level, when we think about the fact that vendor A that's working in actual identity access management says they're only zero trust. And then we've got another vendor who's working in quote unquote buzzword XDR and they're like, No, we're zero trust. but they want to look at the next door name and say, No, you're not doing it. We are and so on and so forth. But really they're maybe chunks of the larger picture. But to I think where Elliot's going, your definition of zero trust and construct of what you kind of think it is at a you know, fifty thousand foot level to dive into.
0: Yeah. So the simplest way that I put ZT for people is I just say, don't trust nothing. I mean, as far as my Texas background goes, that's as clean as I can make it. And it's meant to be slightly, I guess you'd say obtuse because I want people to understand, I I mean, don't trust anything in a system and an infrastructure by default or because there's a perceived reason to allow trust to occur. And Kindervog, to his credit a long time ago, has been saying this, that trust is a human emotion that we took and shoved into digital systems. And then we've tried to whittle away at it for forever (laughs) and we continue to get there. So that's really what, in my opinion, is, is is take that position of default ZT and work your way backwards. And I think that that's a, a point to make very quickly, too, is I get so much hemming and hawing from people about, oh, well, you'll never get to ZT, it's manageable trust and whatever. Yeah, it's the same thing as if a bodybuilder tries to go for zero body fat, they die. If they ever hit zero body fat, that's game over. But you're trying to get towards the lowest level possible to still have the results that you're looking for. And that's achievable, but the market is not sophisticated enough to go off and go, do manageable trust, do blah. It's, you gotta be pretty flat with it. Zero trust. I want you to try and get there. You never will, but that's the... Yeah. I think there's a lot to be
1: said for hype words, right? That gets people's attention. And at the end of the day, it's up to us to actually define what that hype word means. And hopefully push, if you're on my side of the fence as a vendor, hopefully push the marketing team beyond the hype word and actually start showcasing true value prop around the hype instead of just trying to sell the term. And obviously your experience at Forrester, I know. You never saw any hype words just specific for pushing product, right? That doesn't Yeah. Happen. Yeah. Yeah, they have entire budgets for that stuff. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. I mean, if you can't market where you're trying to sell and drive attention to it, you know, that's goal one. Goal two is for us to come in and fix it after the hype is there and actually define what it really means, which is, I think what we're doing now, this is part of the fun, the terms there, people recognize it as a concept for real or for better one way or the other. And now we get to work within the confines of that and kind of come up with the procedures behind it,
0: which is good strategy. I mean, and that's, I'm actually working on a paper that I'm going to put out pretty soon. That's. I kind of took the position of, cause I got so sick of arguing with people about zero trust, whatever else my position in this paper is, you know what? if you think you can do it better with what you're doing right now go ahead cuz it just makes my life easier cuz you're the target like we're running around the Serengeti and if you want to ignore the lions and all the other stuff by all means go right ahead this is not a rising tide lifts all ships as long as chase survives it sucks for you
1: and i'm okay with it that. yeah it's no joke yeah I mean, you, there's only so many lessons learned to pass around, and you're right. You know, if your infrastructure survives, whatever apocalyptic scenario comes down after Log Fort, well, whatever happens this Christmas, because we know something's going to happen, then congrats to you for whatever you did to get there. And, you know, maybe you get to write a wonderful blog about it in January about how, you know, cats RSA doing lessons learned in April. Yeah, no,
2: yes. That's no joke. Anyway. Cool. So, I'd love to kind of poke a, a little bit into your uh, your backlog working over at Forrester. I think just having your experience as you know with analyst relations and working in the behind the scenes so obviously organizations like that help breed and create these kind of concepts buzzwords or not the structures behind it obviously have rippling effects so not all of them stick some are very much focused on the product concepts around it and obviously there's basically like lobbying from organizations that maybe neil and i might be affiliated with but you know what does that look like for a concept that is more philosophical like this to move forward you know just hopefully like a little bit of cracking the door open and giving us a little bit of behind the scenes, you know, how does that function? How is something, I guess, still 10 years in the making, how long does that really take until it kind of bubbles up into the world?
0: A a decade long overnight success, right? Yeah. I think what's interesting there is if you look at Kindervog's early work on ZT, John was preaching the gospel and he hitched his horse to that wagon. He was going to ride it till the wheels fall off credit to him. But when I came in and John had left, they kind of said, I was actually pissed about it, to be perfectly frank. They were like, hey, you're going to take ZT. And I was like, oh, shit, something somebody else had. And now I got to polish this, whatever. And But then when I really started looking at it, I was like, you know, I think what's missing here is a framework so that the vendors can understand what they do in the context of this, because the moment that we published the extended ecosystem framework, the deluge of vendors that just came running into the space were like, oh thank God we've been waiting for this. No, 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 no. And it I think it formalized, like you said, the philosophy into something people could gravitate towards and go, okay, I understand what my piece of this puzzle is. And then you work your way forward from there. So it, you know, it, it the thing about analyst firms that I really love is there's really smart super people doing really good work. But you're paid to kind of run on the knife's edge and some of the stuff that you suggest might just die on the vine. Some of it might take off. It's roll the dice.
2: Yeah. So I think what I took away from that is it is your fault that everyone at RSA and Gartner has- Oh, I totally closed it up. <laughs> <laughs> that is a hundred percent you're doing. So thank it's, you for that.
0: It's, it's for you. I ruined everyone's
2: RSA. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really good way into just kind of the overuse of zero trust in general. So I think, I think Neil might agree with me on this is it is very safe to say the term zero trust for government space. They have mandates that they're moving towards. So terms there it's acknowledged they have nist and CISA and other concepts that they're kind of building around for the private sector where obviously we're seeing most of the marketing dollars kind of push towards enterprise organizations and whatnot where's like the diffusion there how would you if you had i don't know an elevator pitch that said what is safe for you to actually say zero trust is as a company not your definition but like obviously what level is bullshit and what actually is meaningful to a company like an enterprise company i
0: mean in my opinion i tell them in the commercial space it's zero trust not zero you don't you can have faith in your people you can have faith in your plan you can have faith in your the work you've already put into your systems to make them you know generate revenue and all those things but the reality of it is that if you look at it and you step back you've got decades of proof of where failure lies it's a pretty binary choice you either choose to do something different and the results will be different. Or you try and take the same thing and put some new flavoring on it, and it still winds up tasting like a turd because it's still a turd. You know what I mean? And that's what it boils down to. And it, I think too that to tell a lot of the commercial organizations I speak with, the first thing I have them do is I have them do a red team op. And if they won't do a red team op, I just tell them when you're ready, let me know because you're not. I can't fix what I don't know is broken. And if you're not willing to actually address the reality like the adversary would, you're not ready for the adversary.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a really great point. In fact, Neil and I fortunately just had a conversation with an MSSP that was kind of looking at pen testing against zero trust concepts, but that was like our call to action a few episodes ago. We have not really seen organizations who really kind of tore into it from that. Obviously they'll go for the low hanging fruit, but from your perspective, you know, are you seeing these organizations who are offering zero trust products actually, you know, tearing into their own systems or are they, like you said, kind of bypassing that? Okay. The face tells me a story.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of them that are doing it and I don't want to knock anybody because progress is progress, but I do, you know, you, you do wind up drinking from the same poison well that you're putting your own water into, you know what I mean? So uh, if they're an identity company, obviously they're going to solve for identity first. And then you kind of look at it and you go, well, I would think being an identity company, you probably should have solved with this when you launched a product, but uh, you know, it's kind of tangential, but progress is progress. I uh, think that it's good that they're engaged in it, but uh, it does, you know, if you went and really, matter of fact, I'll tell you a little story. I went and did a consulting engagement with a vendor. I won't say who. And when they were running through the whole thing, they were talking about their ZT offering or whatever else, my line. and I said, hang on a second. There was a bunch of execs and whatever board members were in the room, I said, how many people in this room are using the solution that we're offering right now to do ZT for yourself? And I had one hand up and I was like, that, there we go. You know what I mean? It's like you're selling something to someone based on a strategy and you're not even using your own thing to do that.
1: Not a- Yeah, I'm sure yeah. at Forrester you found that a lot too, where that's a unfortunate trend around product providers is it's oddly few and far between who actually use their own product for what it is they're claiming. And, you know, yeah, SaaS providers are predominantly in the cloud and they leverage AWS or Google or some other managed solutions for their own whatever it is they're doing. But at the same vein, if you own a, you own an EDR solution or whatever it may be, and you have a network that it should be on and you're really just, meh, I've got a Juniper firewall, I'm good kind of thing. What's the point of selling the product? And to that point, You're right. There's a lot of zero trust companies out there that I've personally talked with as well, but especially on identity access management type stuff, IDP, IAMP, whatever that aren't, that aren't doing what they're doing. They set up protocols and procedures and you ask them the question, can I see your own self audit of your own stuff? And they're like, yeah, what is that? We offer an audit. We can help you. I'm like, yeah, so you've done it for yourself. No, we're using this other company to do this. (laughs) I'm like, oh, Thank you for telling me. I'll see y'all later. It's it is kind of a good thing to think of. You know, if you're getting down to those third-party solutions, I think it's a good question to ask. Are you using your own thing? Not too many people do that enough, truthfully. Yeah. If you ever wanted to be in an uncomfortable boardroom meeting, do that. Yeah, yeah, been there. But yeah, no, it is a weird world to live in, where people aren't eating their own dog food in the right manner for the products they're offering.
2: Cool. So I hope you don't mind me talking about your day job a little bit since now, maybe your PR guy is probably happy that we'll bring this up, but you know on that concept of eating your own dog food which i guess for my day job they like to say drinking your own champagne which i feel like has a little bit better flavor to it obviously you all work in that zero trust spectrum you have products and solutions and services how as an organization are you tackling zero trust and are, is it like a model that you kind of exude when you're chatting with your clients and customers
0: yeah, so the thing that, that we've put together really is to take what I think is pretty critical to I would call it initial Z T and say, here's the Z T and A connectivity side, pipe you to the resources you need, policy engine powers that and then the other piece is I want the control plane to extend to the user or the asset on the internet. And what I mean by that is making it where, you know, how are you interfacing with stuff right now We're running through the browser or through an application? I want to put controls in front of the user there. So that's been the way that we've put that together. And then the last bit of it is to say not everybody needs everything all the time. And the beauty of software means you can kind of have modules that you might use. So one business might need lots of ZTNA, another business might need more remote browser isolation. And then a the third business might need just really crazy powerful policy controls on all their stuff that's already up and running. So That's been the approach that we've taken as far as making that work. The biggest, I would say, difference sort of crazy IP thing is I wrote the patent for, we can actually run virtual meetings inside of a container in the cloud. Um, So if someone's trying to drop a malicious link to you in a Teams call or like on this thing or something, we can actually put a policy control in front of that. And if you can imagine lots of government clients are freaked out about Teams and Zooms and whatever else. So being able to say, how would you like to run it in a container and then put controls? And then at the end of it, oh, by the way, you just nuke the container and the call never happened.
2: Wow. That is a pretty intense. I'm not going to lie. I've not heard of a concept like that. Obviously, wherever you can remove verticalization for, you know, breaches like that's, yeah. yeah very- cause I
0: mean, the if you think about the zoom call, like if, if I go back to my red teamer days, I'd love to drop somebody a phishing link in a zoom call cause no one ever thinks about it, you know, so it'd be really easy. So that was when we kind of said, well, what if we just. Solve that problem, and all of a sudden, a lot of our government clients were like, oh, "Okay, interesting."
2: Yeah, that's actually. I mean, I know it was probably two years or early in the pandemic where Zoom was definitely getting some of that heat for people <laughs> popping into like classrooms and all that. I mean, I still yeah, see Zoom stuff on like really it now. Yeah yeah exactly i mean i can only imagine how concerning that would be for someone with a, you know not just the corporate side but the government side and if you're able to kind of containerize around that's highly logical that makes sense it's very cool yeah it was, it was a fun patent to write because then
0: you know you also got to get the patent people to understand it and it's you know have to draw with crayons
1: so out of a quick curiosity question how many how many patents would you say that you have then relative to the construct of zero trust or something that applies in that general modality
0: me personally or
1: yeah, for you. I'm not trying to get uh, street, obviously you have that. I'm just more mildly curious and I kind of want to maybe ask I some questions like, about this. I think directly applicable to ZTE, probably six, something like that. So we talked about containerized logic and stuff of that. What's another good one in that bucket?
0: So I was really lucky to work with some guys when I was at Armour that we put together a patent on how to do a real-time difference measurements on cloud resources. And so basically the idea was you're taking a super quick, super minimal snapshot on a cloud resource. Somebody comes along and changes something. If that Delta meets this thing, then it must be a change you should investigate. And then that bubble its way. And it's part of a product line at armor now. So that was pretty cool. And you know, patents are, you write one patent, it turns into four. So it wasn't like I wrote four separate patents. It was one thing that we got four awards on.
1: Nice. So on that thought flow, that sounds like kind of a stepping stone or kind of constructively getting towards the construct of distributed ledger mentality. A... I run a node within the Indicio network, yeah. <laughs> nice. So I was at a conference three weeks ago out in Colorado Springs for space-related stuff. And it's kind of interesting looking across the industry verticals as a whole. When we think about, in my mind, when I think about zero trust and a necessity to do things, the distributed ledger mentality, the blockchain structure is not to me so much as a nicety, but should be a requirement in the approach of how you do this. What are your thoughts on that approach then at that point?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm a fan of the distributed ledger side of things. Like I said, I run a node on Indicio and Indicio is running into some actually doing some collaboration work with them on your digital sort of identity, the self-sovereign side of it. Mm -hmm. And that, that I think is If I pontificate a bit, I think three to five years in the future, we're going to see the distributed ledger stuff powering identity for individuals globally. And they're already starting to show that the COVID certificates kind of proved that was a way to do it. Now there's some major airlines that are starting to do like passport and biometrics and whatever else, and all that's running on a node system in the rear end. Um, or back in i rear in. I don't know why I said that, but back in, <laughs> but that's where I think we're seeing it go because as we become more digital, it's, uh, it fits so well into that practice. And then ultimately where that fits in ZT is if we get to that, we can run where we actually have a verifiable way of making sure that either a an entity is who they say they are, or B a transaction is supposed to occur because there's a validation that's occurred. Oh, and by the way, we have the ledger record to say that it, you know, took place.
1: Yeah. So I, on that same vein, then I just started reading up a little bit more on the concept of that WC3 put out for decentralized identifiers. And, you know, from a historical perspective, the I guess the basic construct for that was more to help support like you and I being able to collateralize our, who we are, right? So like an athlete, I am me, pay me money for you using me. And, you know, in a roundabout way, everything always comes back to some kind of ledger mentality. And in this case, you know, coming back to, you know, irrefutable evidence of who you are and what you are both physical and digital and so that that decentralized identifier construct with wc3 to me is kind of an intriguing idea around both you as an entity as well as what that's going to mean for the digital aspect and then tying all that back into the distributed ledger and hopefully you know having that piece so i guess i see a world where i'm getting i guess i see a world where you know everything we have ids for everything digitally, right? Everything has a Mac. Everything has now maybe an IPv6 address. The whole point of that was to give everything an actual address, right? Stuff like that. But, you know, actual proof of who you are, proof of work, proof of concept, proof of identity, all those fun things that go into all this stuff. You know, I guess that's why I like distributed ledger mentality, because not only do you get your IP or your Mac or your actual physical hardware identifier and your decentralized identifier, whatever that may be, but now you have that ledger to call back to from a There's still obviously some layer of trust implied because that's just how it's always going to be like you mentioned it's not about going full scale it's about you know getting there enough so yeah i guess that's where my brain is at for the last couple weeks is around that i've been very caught up with trying to figure out ways to implement a distributed ledger both from a doc repo perspective because there's companies who provide that layer both from me as a persona and some other constructs that are coming around within this whole mentality
0: Yeah, it's it's a fast developing space and there's some really cool things going on in there that I think are as adoption becomes more of a, you know, blockchain was, oh, we'll do blockchain for, I don't know, those ape NFTs or whatever the hell that was. But really now people are starting to go, okay, distributed ledger, these ecosystems can power um, systems where you have to have verifiable things take place. And that's going to happen just because of the nature of the market, I think.
1: Yeah, I hope so as well. <laughs> I like to think so. I don't like having
0: to carry my my phone and my IDs and all that stuff. Like for me, I should just be like, look, here's my biometrics, it's all there, you know, and go on about my way. And I mean, yes, if someone happens to have my thumbprint, I'm okay, sure, but that's a risk I'm willing to take.
1: Yeah, but that gets us into you know, multi-layer, right? You know, there that I think it's where distributed ledger as a security structure and the way it can be applied comes into fun space here is you know, you get to set up your policies and like we, everything's always going to come back to some kind of policy. But if we look at the basic fundamental model of sharing a document and I create a, a TLP red PowerPoint presentation or PDF to share within a select group of people inside of a larger community, you know, distributed ledger allows me to maybe portion mark that out and have a Terra line. Right. So here's TLP red. Here's TLP, Amber, Amber Strict, Green, so on and so forth, all the way down, whatever this presentation model is. And then if some person shares it wittingly or unwittingly to someone who's not cleared for that access, you know, then it calls back to me and says, hey, by the way, here's Joe Schmo accessing your Docker wants access, grant access or not. So that's stage one, right? So yes, and only grant access to piece A, B, and D instead of A, B, C, D. And then the flip side of that is in a policy perspective, the idea of being able to say geofencing is something as simplistic as that. You know, if this document is opened inside of bad country X, I'm not going to call anything out specifically like China. You get the point. Don't allow anything to happen with that document. Completely scramble it, delete it, erase it, explode it, do whatever you have to do to make sure that someone doesn't maintain an offline copy that can eventually be accessible, right? So I think that the policy piece of what you can apply with the right distributed ledger methodology is really intriguing. And then same thing with you, like you mentioned, biometrics, right? So if I'm still inside the United States going through the airport right now, I use clear has three different methodologies for identifying you: eyes, left hand, right hand. Any one of those is considered an applicable value. And then the other piece of that is the physical check, right? They see you, they know you, they compare the picture. But let's say if you're out in Ireland and there's a server issue and the image doesn't come up, well, what's the next step? Obviously, probably an actual ID on top of what you did fingerprint coupled with who knows what else, right? So you can put means and bounds in play to escalate or de-escalate based off of thresholds and what you are comfortable with. And I think Mm. that to me is an exceedingly intriguing piece. We do that already, but we don't do that at that micro level that we could do. I truly hope we're getting towards. Yeah. And I'm with you. As much as I abhor digital fingerprints for me, it is the way everything's going to go. And being able to further understand that, take advantage of it. And then, yeah, carry around, like you mentioned with the vaccines, carry around your phone and be like, hey, you know, this says who I am. What do you want me to type in my passcode that authenticates to your ledger of record or whatever for this? Cool. Let me do that real quick. And then boop. And then you're on. I think it's clever. And I think we'll be there. The moment they start putting the microchip in my arm like Demolition Man style, I'm going to be looking for Wesley Snipes to chop my arm off. Get your three seashells, yeah. yeah <laughs> he doesn't understand the seashells.
2: Hey, at least you get good yeah.
1: Taco Bell. So we talked about, I was very curious about your patents only because, you know, one, it's obviously a good talking point. And two, I'm just a very curious guy. I like to meet people who've done stuff like that. I find when I can have a conversation about what you've created and actually got it legalized to say is, is kind of fun and should be motivation for other people with ideas to realize that it takes some work, but at the same vein, you know, it's fun work, hopefully. And uh, it's a good thing to check off on your uh, to-do list. I think personally, I don't have any, so I, that's just me saying I'm jealous, but I got other stuff. I just, I don't have the energy to patent it. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try to patent something for uh, beer making, but I got to figure out something cool and innovative there. I don't know. <laughs> so moving back over onto the zero trust side of the house, Elliot, I'm going to throw it back to you, but
2: yeah totally so i think we can get back to some of the core elements so obviously you you know the bread and butter and the resources firsthand usually we'll ask this basic question and there's one of four different things unless we man what is his name oh nick he's the only one that probably went across the edge because he has his own series called in the neck of time or something like that but if you Mm -hmm. had a yeah our friend from space force if you had to point someone towards one resource that let's say you're at my level not necessarily your levels to understand what zero trust is like where would you point them like where is something that like a layman's person like myself could go and actually start to understand zero
0: I think George Finney at SMU just published a book called Project Zero Trust, and it's a narrative rundown on kind of a whole scenario, like a book on an organization putting ZT in place. I think that that's a really good, number one, George is a great writer, but number two, it's a good sort of way for someone that's not super geeky into it to understand here's kind of the business drivers and the other pieces and the politics that become part of this. So I would say that's one. And then I think on the other piece is really there's a book that Jason Garbus and Jerry Chapman published called Zero Trust Security. I think that's its biblical tome, in my opinion, for people that are looking to understand ZT. And then there's an O'Reilly book from Evan Gilman on ZT that I think is worth reading as well. So that would be kind of my progression would be George's book, then Jason and Jerry's and then Evan Gilman.
2: Excellent. Cool. That is probably the first time we've actually had people flag specific books towards zero trust. I know there's quite a few resources out there. Product companies are creating their own eBooks and all that stuff. Not quite the same, but yeah, usually I think our typical cup of tea is, oh yeah, like the CISA or pillars and frameworks and You know, folks like myself are probably going to look at that and just glaze over. I have no idea what the hell I'm reading here. something about an architecture, but it's missing a lot of the business implications. And I think there's probably more business implications when you're looking at a concept like zero trust versus just adopting a piece of technology. Yeah. So I... I think that is probably the biggest piece that is always missing out of those initial conversations for Zero Trust, which is why I appreciate organizations like yourselves who are able to kind of position people in a little bit better way. So obviously there's products and strategy involved, but you know, being able to dial it in from you know basically the CISO perspective of, you know, cybersecurity and where zero trust comes in i mean it's all about business that's why we do
0: we do nobody's starting up and just going i'm going to be secure for the sake of being secure you're doing it for some purpose so business is going to be that purpose whether that business is taking care of patients or you know managing billions of dollars or whatever it is but i mean that's why we're in the game is ultimately to secure something at least i hope you know you you can be super secure and just sit in a cave in the middle of nowhere if you want
1: well that doesn't work out for everyone does it it's good for that person (laughs) I guess depends on who decides to come hunting you down. But to, so actually, I kind of have a slight backstep question. If Elliot will let me go this way real quick, I've asked this question a couple of times. Not everybody, but just a couple here around legality and standardization. So we brought up NIST. I agree with both of you that that's yeah, it's a good reference point. You got to start somewhere. You might as well look at that. But when we get down into the weeds, there's definitely some material to really drive home. But You also mentioned this at the very beginning, Elliot asked this loosely from a policy perspective, standardization, you know, 10 days and forever kind of, or 10 years and forever response, right? So when we think about this, when we think about what zero trust could be, is, would be, or was, when we look at the government side of the house, we look that they have technically in a roundabout way defined what that mentality is, obviously very recent. They've officially stated that they're moving towards this mentality publicly. And then, so my question for you is, do you see a do you see the potential for us to have a publicly consumable document that says do A, B, and C? And yes, knowing it's always going to be shifting, there's never none of these standards that we ever create security are always here, right? They're all compliance driven to get you started, and then you got to build into what the actual security will have been. But do you see a compliance standard being ratified in the public space outside of the government side, or rather the private space/slash commercial side rather than the public government side of the house? Gotta remember my term switch around here when I start talking about them.
0: Yeah, so I would say that there's already some machinations in place with a variety of organizations to do some of that. I on the fence as far as the value proposition from going too deep into that. And the reason that I'm hesitant about it is a real strategy is not something where it is gonna be from on high and then everything kind of fumbles around that. And I think we've if we look at the market for Cyber 2, we've created so much of the self-licking ice cream cone of misery around compliance standards and requirements and all this that it's almost impossible. It's good for auditors. It's good for you know those folks, but it's really super difficult to say i'm going to take this thing and go subscribe to that standard and it's going to yield me an outcome because along the way other things creep into that i'm hesitant to say how much i personally want to throw into that mix but i do think that there's value in people understanding the big strategic initiatives that we're trying to put in place and then kind of adopt what you need on your own if you're if you know if you're better defended today than you were yesterday I think you're progressing along the lines of ZT. You know, it, I think we need some. I think we need some clarity. I'm hesitant on standards.
1: Fair enough. Do you think this will impact, like the whole cyber insurance? Hell, of I blue? sure hope so.
0: Yeah. Because. <laughs> <laughs> Cyber insurance makes my skin crawl for a whole lot of reasons. Yeah. I'll never get an invite to an insurance company's
1: event, but. That's probably for better. Uh, No, thank you. So once again, asking the question, because your perspective is a little different than the previous perspectives, obviously, not just because you're doing ZT, but because your actual position at the company you're at as well. So that's a solid take. I, I am personally... Concerned that we will get some kind of official compliance model, but that it will be like some of the ones in the past where it's not like an I, it's a company A that paid Gartner enough money or Forrester enough money to get it out there in the limelight. And everybody starts being like, well, I guess we got to jump on that bandwagon. And then it becomes, I mean, we've seen that with other stuff, but yeah, Sorbane's Oxley, PCI, HIPAA, high
0: trust, I mean, you know, the alphabet soup there. So yeah,
1: most of them were not independent, most of them were someone got smart and. Well, and there's no teeth to them. I
0: mean, they say, you know, the GDPR and what our GDPR was supposed to be the second coming of, you know, data security or whatever else. Find me a business that's gone out because of a GDPR violation, even though that they're still I mean, it's Marriott's last breach. I actually I published it. I did the logistics sort of analysis on how much Marriott pays for toilet paper per year and how much they paid for their breach fine. They pay more to wipe your ass than they did for the breach fine. So.
2: That was, was our preview for yeah, that. That was that oh, punitive,
0: yeah. you know what I mean? It's until, it, it, and I yeah. guess, the because I do a bunch of work on Capitol Hill, the question I keep having is, okay, Congressman, Senator, if you're telling me that cyber is critical to life, health, and happiness in the United States, and they all say yes, then by definition, if I am doing things that are negligent, that could endanger said outcomes, shouldn't I be treated the same way as if I'm building an aircraft and I knowingly decide I'm not going to bolt the engines on, right? But I still let people get on and fly. And they all say yes. But the moment you start saying, well, what's the impact of this? And how are we going to legislate it? then they kind of back up. I'm, I don't know. And yeah. It's, you know. Well, the, uh,
1: what was it? Our wonderful colonial pipeline prompted a an update to an already established construct of critical infrastructure information sharing, right? It was just a regurgitation <laughs> of stuff. It did, the only, plausible, decent thing, I guess, legally was the whole bill of sales mentality. But even that, you know, yeah, I don't think that's getting enforced nor will it at the moment, but yeah, I'm, I agree. It's they can pass what they want, but who's actively enforcing it. At the end of the day, it comes back down to the trust communities that are within those particular verticals to, they're not going to fine each other, but they're going to help try to keep each other semi-accountable and maybe help write standards specific to their industry. Whether it's with their partner liaison agency back to the federal government or EU, wherever they're based out of, or their ISAC or ISAL or other community that they're involved in at any point in time. It all comes back to just being tied to some kind of lobbying firm and to help them avoid getting in trouble when something like that happens. Well, yeah, everything's only up and up until lawyers get involved. (laughs) Yeah, that's no joke. A lot of information sharing groups I'm a part of get ruined when one lawyer starts sniffing around too much. Yeah, Even the communities that are for Lawyers, funny enough, that yeah. was a fun one. But no, th- th- those are good points. I think on that final thing for that piece, you know, when we think about regulatory compliance, when we think about uh, industry verticals, I will say that the cyber side in general, the way that I see that we've approached it as a government, we've left cyber as not defined as critical infrastructure structurally speaking we define the pieces that put into it whether that's telecoms whether that's financial services even retail or health industry and then we leave it up to those bodies and regulatory committees to define where the cyber compliance and modalities are within them but to your point nobody's really defined the space, which is now an AOR by definition, has been since 2010, officially, militaristically speaking. But you're right, nobody's really clearly said that this is a focal point individually. We've just left it up to everybody else to move forward.
2: So I think my two cents, and I'm only speaking because I have excessive exposure, mm-hmm. and my colleague, Mr. Troy Fine, would probably meme me to death if I did not state, <laughs> like, once again, that compliance should be like the outcome of good cybersecurity and security posture. So I think if they tried to put together some rails and compliance around zero trust specifically, I'd probably doing a disservice if it is as ph- philosophical in nature as it is today, they would probably have to neuter it in some capacity where it was like a you know control-based concept or something to that extent. And it probably just wouldn't have the same functionality. Now, my guess is like, Maybe they'll adopt some concepts of zero trust into things like CMMC or some of these other elements that are already you know out there that make sense to do that. But until like you had said with HIPAA or PCI, some particular industry wants to fully adopt it and kind of do it on their own. Yeah, uh, hopefully we won't ever see anything like that. Otherwise, I think the philosophical nature of it will just kind of degrade. Yeah. Strategy,
0: strategy. I mean, it, you know, you look at the, uh, the realities of any space and you figure out what you got to have to be successful and you work your incrementally towards that strategy. And then you adapt because of requirements that come in front of you and that strategy too. So, uh, you know, what's the Star Wars thing? Only a Sith deals in absolutes. I mean, there's no absolute here. This is your organization, your strategy. However, you should base it in the realities of the space in which you operate and then build you know, things around that. There's no real need for a Kentucky windage in cyber. You know, This is one of the only spaces where the bad guy, the adversary will tell you what they're going to do. It's up to you to do something about it. I mean, those proof of concepts are legit. <laughs> I mean, if somebody walks up and they're like, I'm going to punch you in the face, take it at gospel. They're going to punch you in the face. Thinking
1: forward then on this, do you think Zero trust is a, uh, do you think zero trust modeling and construct is going to stay from a nomenclature perspective or do you think we'll finally reach a threshold where it finally becomes an ingrained principle and we're no longer just saying, well, let's go do zero trust. We're saying, hey, we're just at security level, right? We're at, at what's perceived security. Do you think we see a future where that concept is more holistically applied instead of just being a fad word in the mix? Yeah,
0: I think it has already achieved critical-ish mass as far as the industry being aware of it. I think the fact that government's writing EOs on it is helping to kind of push that down. I think ultimately what we're going to kind of see evolutionary here is a lot of organizations are going to subscribe to their version of this and they're going to put those controls in place and they're going to become harder targets. And then you're going to have all the, you know, naysayers and the slow gazelles that are going to be trying to catch up. They're going to get tired of getting eaten alive and they're going to start subscribing to the approach. So, over time, I think that will they'll work its way across the broader ecosystem and you'll have almost some semblance of a zero trust internet, if you will. But it's going to be based on, you know, a whole bunch of different things coming into in, to make it more more operational. Now, and the final piece of that will be As cloud and other technologies and APIs and these things continue making interoperability more doable, the masses will move into that space as well. And the reason that I have a lot of hope in that is when I talk to the younger generation, you know, kids around my kid's age and slightly older, they're starting to, without being beat to death by the nerds, understand things like two-factor authentication. You know what I mean? So that they get this stuff and it's because it has a very realistic use case for them which is usually protecting their v bucks or whatever the hell but they're starting to get that and security the digital way of life is becoming a thing like you you won't see a lot of kids when you walk by and you try and grab their phone they don't leave them unprotected there's a pin code or something like that so i think in a perfect storm we kind of evolve into that space over the course of the next decade plus
1: yeah, oh, well, there you go. That answers my next question. Five, ten, fifteen, thirty years out, kind of thing. I think a
0: decade or two, kind of, is how it's going to work. I think also, kind of, what you and I were talking about before is as these base things become more, and you have a lot more auditability and trackability, traceability of particular transactions. I think that will play its way into enforcement of these types of things. You know, that'll be that'll be part of the whole sort of mo of the space. Then again, it all comes crashing down day after tomorrow and it's back to
1: beating each other with rocks and whatever. So yeah, that, well, that's a whole nother conversation about the criticality of space and how it's not defined as a critical infrastructure officially it's defined as supporting to critical infrastructure but it like cyber in a sense right but yeah knock out a couple of satellites we'll see how critical it gets you then.
0: should uh, you should read the book that uh, general two and i published called riptide where we basically put that scenario into play and it, it you know he was the big muckety muck with the government side and i was the bread team bad guy side and we wrote each piece and it came together and the whole thing without ruining the narrative is what if you injected malicious randomly generated numbers into the GPS system for satellites. That would be a really bad thing. So I'll let you.
1: But here's the fun fact. You don't even have to do that right now. 5G itself operates in the same bandwidth space. So you screw up a 5G implementation at an airport like happened three weeks ago. And planes at DFW can't land on a fricking runway because yeah. And yeah, once again, whole nother fun conversation there. But thinking about zero trust and the mentality on that side, there, there's a signal fidelity, not just, it wasn't, they haven't released notes on what actually really happened, but the implication is that it was a 5g overlay issue, but even then, unless you're blatantly pushing out a bandwidth specific to the thing coming in and just flat out signal loss in that signal noise, the signals are still making it through the signals are still available. It's just, you know, you don't know which one to actually respond to and from, and I, that that's a 5g GPS issue. So if you could do some kind of legit overlay with inside the raw signal to say A versus B outside of just an identifier, there's a lot to be overcome with that, even within the GPS realm. Um, but going back, man, I keep hitting my mic here, going back a few seconds, when you mentioned the phases of how things go, you've got the primaries, you got the middle guys, and then you got the tertiary stragglers who eventually come along. Now, I think this is a good opportunity to think about lessons learned from past security issues past trends and analysis pieces thinking strategically around how things tend to go and the evolution around things so uh, you mentioned this and I got to thinking about Angular exploit kit and all the other fun crap with Adobe flash right back in 2000 what was that 2012 2013 14 I don't remember Eight to 10 years ago, whenever that was. We think about this and people, when Angular first came out and was writing these net new zero days for Adobe, all the smart companies like, fine, we're going to go to what was then new HTML5 or transition to some other type of presentation file within the browser or just completely cut it out and say, oh, well, whatever. We ain't got a replacement, but at least we're secure. I don't care if you can see the little pretty pictures and a flashy gif-y thing on the side, stuff like that. But to that point, we had that happen, flashed it and go away for almost another... About another six years, roughly, six before stuff. Adobe finally, finally killed it. it, right? And then they tried to replace it with their own iterations of other stuff between Shockwave, Flash, and other variations. But long and short, stragglers. We had the primary people say this sucks, we're done. We had the middle road people realize it sucks a few years later, say it's done. And then finally, you know, roughly eight, six to eight years down the road, everybody's like, oh yeah, we got it, we're done. And then Adobe finally sunset it. So, think from that perspective. Do you think you mentioned ten years as a mark? I think that's I think that's a good. Generic, hopeful, wishful Mark, but do you think when we start getting this true adoption, like we're starting to get now, do you hope or think that people might actually increase that, that curve a little faster and that S curve launch could be a little, a little more than, you know, three to five years to start getting the middle road and four to five more years to get the tertiary people at the bottom. Do you really? Yeah, I think think it
0: really, I think it really more in my opinion is around the commoditization of security technology and how it works its way down market. Where, you know, we see that the average everyday person, if they wanted to, they could set up a pretty secure Azure O365 or G Cloud instance and do business that way. And then you can do things like on your personal phone, set up biometrics and whatever. So I think is the nerd factor for security configuration moves down market and people can do things more on their own and it becomes part of that. It's the opposite of the trickle down. It's the kind of push bubble up, I guess you'd call it. Um, security solution set. And then that begins to expedite stuff because you don't have to go off and, and number one, educate people, but number two, the BYOD and these other things, it's going to be more okay to say, you want to run your own stuff? Fine, great, go whatever. I'll just do ZTNA for your work and whatever else you keep your little machine and go look at whatever you look at on the internet. So I think that kind of is where the groundswell will happen. And, you know, again, back to that other point is this is, this is herd mentality where when people see, you know, the leaders at the herd doing better, they'll kind of go, what's,
1: what do you got going on there? Yeah. Yeah. I think that ties into your previous statement about, Hey, kids today, what a security for them versus us when we first got our phones, right? They've never been I a mean, day in their
0: life without wireless. Like they, it's a foreign concept to them that wireless,
1: you know, is not like
0: my kids. If
1: Wi-Fi goes
0: out, it's Armageddon, you
1: yeah. <laughs> that's a no joke. Well, it's a good thing that we have other ways to look into what our kids are doing on the network. Yeah. Even if their phones are locked away from us, but uh, oh, I tell my
0: kids, I, you live in a surveillance state in my house. I see everything.
1: Yeah. <laughs> ditto. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, once again, that's another podcast, Dads How to Take Care of the Kids Networks in Your
2: House. Brought
1: to you in part by Dads with Guns. But moving a little bit more on this,
2: I think uh, that's yeah, how you end up with have... kids that end up in cybersecurity. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Around
1: it is how they get there. Yeah. You buy them their exactly. first kind of computer, and the next thing you know, they're. Uh, yeah. That you don't have to worry about their phone. You have to worry about the computer they hid in a spider hole outside by the tree that they're using to covertly talk to their friends four doors <laughs> down by some weird off the wall 802.11 standard that just came out. I Pipe dreams. If my kids could do that, I would be happily accessing. I, I would hire power. them. I would. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but congrats, kids. You got around me. You have a job tomorrow anyway but thinking about the rest of this idea and adoption and growth strategy, i think these are big things for people to understand is like indicative pieces here is that you know once again 10 15 years ago or i mean hell right now even to some extent when you tell someone of a certain age bracket or certain cultural upbringing relative to their exposure cult, to cybersecurity, cultural exposure to that you tell them hey enable google authenticator as a basic right most people today unfortunately still go Whatever. But the younger crowd, to your point, that grew up with this, you're right. They're like, yeah, why didn't we do that yesterday? So I think culturally, I think that's probably a big, big boon for us is that we're at this little tip of the spear now where, you know, as leaders, we get to push the idea, but culturally, it shouldn't be as difficult as it was 15 years ago to get that type of security mentality down to not just the security staff, but the actual employee base consuming the processes, right? At least mm-hmm. I hope. We're always going to have some guy who's, whatever stuck in his mom's basement and doesn't care. But that's a whole different thing too. outliers, not the norm. Thankfully, (laughs) well, maybe we should get the good doctor back on with our pen testing friend from a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, whenever that was. And then I honestly think this would be a wonderful conversation to have with you, our wonderful pen test crew. And then maybe a, uh, heck maybe even Errol, I'd love to get some perspective from a community driven idea and how they're helping drive policy from perspectives like the good doc here and the actual vendors providing the assessments. I think that'd be a wonderful, cool roll-up to have actually, if you're on board with that. So yeah, stay tuned went. people. We're going to have a panel at some point in time, probably <laughs> season two. So look forward to that one. And uh, yeah, I think that'd be amazing. Oh, that'd be fun. That'd be fun. I can talk about that. That'd be a long session, I think. Yeah, we, Well, you know, nothing to say if we can't find the time that it's not a two hour block and then we chunk it up into like the minute episodes focal point question ABC. Anyway,
2: we can talk about that later. Well, Elliot, back to you for wrap ups here. Yeah. So that's actually a prelude for our next episode, which is going to wrap up season two, where we're going to chat about hopefully whatever we're going to do for the next season. Thank you, Chase, for joining us to help us kind of like really close this out on a high note. Someone with your level of experience and expertise is honestly not super always accessible to people. And I appreciate that you're not just hosting, you know, podcasts, but, you know, putting out content that's incredibly useful for people. But yeah, so for Neil and I, hopefully we'll have additional voices kind of coming into each episode so that it's not just interrogating people like yourself going forward as much as we appreciate the conversations. Yeah, we'll add a little bit of extra spice going.
0: Oh, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And if I can ever be of assistance to y'all or anyone else, just please reach out. To love what you're doing and thank you
1: for your time. All right. Neil, you want to close us out, man? Ah, oh, dude. Doc, it's been great. Like I said, it's been phenomenal. And like Elliot mentioned, I think you're going to be the feather in our cap for the end of the season. And man, I really do hope we can get you back on a larger discussion path. And thank you for, you know, obviously you do this more than we have. So thanks for letting us come in and pick your brain and get some fun stuff out of you today. So if anybody learns even one thing from this, I hope it's that everybody's still learning and there's still a lot of things to consume and and go through. So thank you very much. Awesome. Awesome.
0: Thank you for joining AZT, an independent series. Your hosts have been Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis. To learn more about Zero Trust, go to adoptingzerotrust.com. Subscribe to our newsletter or join our Slack community. Viewpoints expressed during the show do not reflect the brands, employers, or companies of our hosts, guests, or potential sponsors.